You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 211. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Okay, I want to say this week we are going to be, myself and Aaron are going to be presenting at the Money Show, the Canadian virtual event. So those presentations will be myself Wednesday, May 17th at 4.35 p.m. and to 5.05 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 1.35 to 2.05 Pacific Time. Aaron's will be Thursday, May 18th at 1.35 to 2.05 Eastern Time. And that is 10.35 to 11.05 Pacific Time. I will be talking about basically four uh, cash-producing stocks, really, that you can find nowhere else to put in your portfolio. If you want to get access to that, sign up to the podcast, uh, and we'll send you off an email of where you can directly get access to that. That'll come out uh, with any, to anybody who signed up to our podcast, and you'll get access to that. We'll also send out an email out to all of our current uh, clients or and current subscribers to this podcast as well. Aaron, do you know what you'll be talking about? Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about um, essentially the principles of building a portfolio um, by combining some great dividend growth stocks with some higher growth, more exciting themes like technology. And that's going to include generative AI um, stuff that's that's aligned with chat GPT. So the idea here is that, you know, you don't have to just be a conservative dividend investor. You don't have to just be somebody who's chasing the most exciting stocks. There are ways of building a portfolio where you use solid dividend growth stocks um, as a foundation for that portfolio. And then you augment the return of your portfolio by adding layers of risk and some more exciting higher growth names. So that's what we're going to talk about, those principles, avoiding some of the common pitfalls that investors um, get caught in. And then I'm going to have four recommendations for companies at the end that uh, really, you know, highlight what we talk about throughout the, the, the presentation. We might even open up a Q&A session after uh, those that you'll get a link to those. I will tell you in the presentations where you can link back to our website and watch them. But they're the virtual money show. You can sign up uh, at the money show, www.moneyshow.com. Is that what it is? I hope. That's what I'm hoping. But you, uh, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, we'll send you out the information on that. It's great to be back with you again this week. We have a busy show this week with four, count them, four Your Stock Our Takes. More listeners equals more questions, I assume. I will kick them off with a look at Hamilton Thorne Limited, symbol HTL and the TSX Venture, a provider of precision instruments, consumables, software and ser- as services, that reduce cost, increase productivity, improve results, and enable breakthroughs in assisted reproductive technologies. Research, cell biology markets as well. 
The stock is historically cash flow positive and recently posted solid organic growth. But is it translating into solid cash flow per share? I will let you know. Aaron will answer a listener question on Palantir Technology, symbol PLTR on the New York Stock Exchange. It builds and deploys software platforms for the intelligence community in the U.S. to assist in counterterrorism investigations and operations. The, comp- the company provides Palantir Gotham, a software platform which enables users to identify patterns hidden deep within data sets. Aaron lets you know if this stock should find a place as a Batman-style anti-hero in your portfolio. Breton at Brennan. What's his name? Breton? Brennan? I don't even know. Brennan answers a listener question on Alexandria Real Estate Equities, symbol A-R-E on the New York Stock Exchange, an office REIT focusing primarily on the life science and biotech markets. The stock has been cut in half basically year to date from its high of approximately $225 per share. Is there an opportunity here or is it a falling knife? Brennan will take a look. Finally, Brett reviews a viewer question on 23andMe, symbol ME or ME on the NASDAQ, a consumer genetics and research company. Brett will let you know if the company has isolated the stock picker's gene, but more importantly, whether or not 23andMe should be part of your portfolio. All right, I'm going to welcome Aaron and our co-hosts here, Brett and Brennan, the Killer Bees. How are you guys doing? doing well. Welcome. Have a good weekend, yeah. or what did you get Mother's up Day. to? Anything Mother's huge? Day weekend, so. Happy Mother's Day. It's true. Yeah. Donna, if you're listening, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Mothers. You're the greatest. Amazing mothers. Yep. It's true. It's true. And to Candace, too. Wow. Oh, God. But I know she's not listening. That's <laughs> the thing. So it doesn't really matter. Oh, it's great. Anyways, no, yeah, we had a good weekend. Good Mother's Day over there, Aaron. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, I just keep myself busy, right? Because uh, I got to make sure that I handle everything, which is a good. <laughs> Don't thing. screw up, basically. That's what I do is, what... is I make I make the day as easy as possible. Oh, anyway, that that sounds that's good. Appreciates. And you guys, did you spend time with the I moms? I did not. Uh, my parents are going to come down to Saskatoon <laughs> next weekend, um, and we're going to like celebrate kind of Mother's Day and my birthday and Everett, which is my brother-in-law's you birthday see as well. Your mom on Mother's Day. I mean, she lives an hour and a bit away, and I had to drive. You know, I would oh yeah, have had well, to that's, that's way. I too called far. her. That's you know, we never, yeah. we exchanged some tears on the phone, and I, uh, you know, told her how because you didn't show up. <laughs> no, that's no, why no, it's because I told right? her how yes. uh, you know I wouldn't be here without her. Uh, anyways, Brett, that would be true your, of all of us. Did, did you talk to your mom, Brett? <laughs> yeah. Let's get away from me. Brett yeah, says yeah, I got nothing me. to say. No. Uh, I, I will say, uh, so my brother has had a little wiener dog that's about seven years old now, and we have a little puppy that's about six months, and they finally got to meet up after this time, which they've been wanting to. My mom was all uh, extremely uh, happy about how they actually got along, because they briefly met uh, when she was about a couple months old and did not get along, so it's been a big turnaround for them, and uh, I'm pretty sure... That dog is uh, her favorite child now, so yeah, it's quite important. Well, who, who gets along more, the dogs or you and your brother? Ah, uh, the dogs. I'm pretty sure. Like they, <laughs> they're they're with how they were going, it's hard to beat. So I, I don't That's think 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, like I said, I we we have a puppy in the house now, and like socializing them is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Getting them actually. Yeah. So she's out there uh, trying to tackle every dog on the street and at the beach. I was at the dog park. It's good weekend. times. Yeah. I didn't bring a dog, but I was just there. <laughs> <laughs> I, can we? Should we explore that, or should we just move on? Uh, we have no There's idea a, why. Just yeah. did you bring a no, cat? No, I was or, there with friends. There's like a beach along the river, uh, and uh, yeah, so I was there. It is this is the last part. thing I will say about my weekend. We were at a uh, we were we went up uh, to this Harrison Hot Springs a place and there's a lake there. So you're at a beach and I had lunch. So you have to find now that you have a dog in front. You got to find dog friendly places to go, right? So totally. we went in this place that was really good. Actually, uh, had eight in there, but there was about six or seven dogs in there. And then in walks these two people with cats on their backs. They had cat backpacks when they're on leashes, but on their back, just walking in, they sit down, they sit on these chairs right next to us. And our dog has like a loud bark and the dog barks and the, the cats just sit there. Don't even move once. Everybody was amazed. There's people taking pictures and I was pretty cool. Maybe we'll, I'll put up a picture of that. I think we have a picture. So we'll put up a picture of that so people can see because everybody I know wants to see these cats sitting there. But that was part of the, the cat weekend. Brennan, you, you could be nice, the same as those people. Awesome. Nice trip to the lake there with the dog. Yeah, we went up to Sasquatch to Mountain to look at some properties. There was no one up there. Yeah, the the dog. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. You know my love of the dog. Of course I loved it up there. Before oh, we move on, great. can I just good. say one last thing? It is sad. No. The Oilers got knocked out of the playoffs. Or I'm extremely or, happy. Yeah, one of the depends. Two. Depends, you know. But Look, I, I, the, the, the Leafs are out too. So there's no Canadian. It's been 30 years. No Canadian Stanley Cup champion uh, over that period. So, I mean, the Canucks, they, we don't even enter the conversation. So, I mean, I can make fun of every other team because honestly, the Canucks have been the worst Canadian franchise, at least in my opinion, for about 11 years. But they're so. the last Canadian team that's made it to the final? Is that no, the Canadians made it in, oh, the, right, um, in, the, in the bubble. I don't know if we really even count that. There was an all-Canadian division. It was strange. But, I mean, Canadian fans out there, we can count that. It's true. But, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, the so last yeah, that got close. Different. Yeah, a little different that year. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Let's actually get to yeah. stocks. I <laughs> think that's what people want to actually hear about. I'm going to start with a your stock, our take, uh, listener question or viewer question on Hamilton Thorn Limited, symbol HTL on the TSX Venture, trades around $1.63, $237 million market cap. The company sells lab equipment, consumables, software, and services primarily to the globally Global Assisted Reproductive Technology Industry, which captures in vitro fertilization. Um, Hamilton Thorne sells the, uh, the portfolio branded and third-party offerings on a global basis through direct sales and distributors. So let's start by looking at the balance sheet here. A company has around $15.85 million in cash as at its last period, $16.97 in debt. So net debt is just uh, just over a million. So pretty solid balance sheet, relatively speaking. They just released their first quarter 2023 results. Uh, sales increased 19% to 16.7 million. Um, and first quarter adjusted EBITDA was up 13% to 2.8 million. Now, organic sales were up 15%, which is great to see. The organic growth, sorry, was up 15%. 
Uh, and net net income, however, decreased to just seventy-seven thousand uh, for the quarter. Cash used in operations uh, in the quarter was about one hundred and forty-two in that range uh, thousand. So the company has been historically cash flow positive, and this should be the case over the remainder of twenty twenty-three. But even taking last year's operating cash flow, which was one point eight million. The company would then trade at around 132 times cash flow. Now, 2022 cash flow was depressed. So if we go back to 2021 on an operating cash flow basis, if we see what it's trading at today, it's about 42 times. Historically, the company trades at about 20 to 30 times cash flow. Now, generally here, we look at the share structure of the company. Historically, it has grown via acquisition and has issued shares and used debt to pay for that growth. There is organic growth, like we said in the last quarter, but a big part of the growth has come from acquisitions. This has taken the share count from about 52 million shares in 2014 to 144.8 million shares today. That's almost three times higher. Now, Hamilton Thorpe is not nearly the worst defender in respect to um, in respect to increasing its uh, share count. Uh, it has grown on a per share basis its cash flow historically, but we do find that most small and mid cap companies that are tremendous performers over the long term they find a way to provide less dilution as they grow over time. Included in this list of companies that we've recommended in the past that have been tremendously successful and not increased their share count significantly over five and 10 year periods would be a company like Expel, Hammond Power, The Boyd Group, and Water Firmus. Names from our coverage that have done 10 times performance, uh, had tremendous growth and limited share dilution over the long term. So that's a general thing that we would like to look for in a business, limiting the uh, dilution that the company provides over the long term. So our take overall on Hamilton Thorne, I see the businesses run by competent management in a solid industry that is currently producing strong organic growth and they're taking market share. The company has a reasonable balance sheet and growth in revenues at a solid pace from 7.9 million in 2013 to about 78.8 million in 2022. Over that time, the stock has performed well going from 10 cents to $1.63 today. Operating EPS has been a bit more volatile over that period. If you look in 2023, operating income was roughly 400,000. It surged to 5 million in 2018 and 2019, just over, but has failed to return to that level since. 2020 was affected by COVID, but they moved closer to that figure at about 4.8 million in 2021. But in 2022, they declined on an operating income basis to 3.2 or 3.3 million. As we stated to start 2023, cash flow was negative. Operations should continue to normalize and contribute to and contribute to the negative cash flow uh, turning positive over the course of this year. But there there was some one-time items including um, timing of increased accounts receivable, reducing accounts payable at the end of the quarter that did contribute to the 2023 Q1 negative cash flow. Inventories were up slightly as the company begins to unwind significant investments in inventory that were made in 2023. Again, on a positive note, organic growth, which eliminates the effects of both acquisitions and exchange rates was up 15% for this first quarter, reflecting again, like we said, continued market share gains. 
Management has stated they are actively working on multiple acquisition opportunities as well. And they do have the cash on hand to do that and a debt facility that they can tap into. Hamilton Thorne is interesting. It's a good niche player, but the stock currently trades at roughly 90 times EPS and well above historical cash flow multiples. Good business, but expensive until it generates better cash flow. Right. And what we would want to see from a company like this, which is a small cap, is, you know, we would want to see it trading at a discount to yeah. the large cap comparables. And this is not at all the case. So, you know, at a, at a valuation, I mean, if you look at analyst expectations for the current year, analysts are looking at about four cents in earnings. So that brings them to I think about 45 times roughly. Yeah, um, that's still a, that's that's a major premium valuation. I mean, there's a yeah, lot and that could be an, an on adjusted earnings too. Yeah, it looks like that would be adjusted, adjusted earnings, earnings yeah. as well, yeah. right? So, yeah. um, you know, premium valuation, a lot of expectation baked in, not a lot of flexibility to disappoint. It's a good business in a unique uh, niche, and it may be one of those that could be a takeover target over the long term. But we're not going to buy it just on speculating on a turn takeover. Uh, they certainly, you know. They've grown revenues at a high rate. They've grown the share count significantly, like we said too. So you really have to you grow those revenues to produce per share cash flow um, uh, that increases over time. They're going to have to really ratchet up margins and produce better cash flow. That would get us more interested. Good top line growth, a little more spotty cash flow growth, and we'd like to see that follow the top line growth at a better clip and more consistently over time. Again, we have talked with management in the past. I think they are you know, well run. I think they've done a reasonable job at growing the business. The share price has done you know, reasonably quite well over, over that period of time where they've been you know, executing acquisitions and now growing organically as well. But it is expensive on a cash flow basis. We want to see, like Aaron said, likely a discount to some larger players, uh, not necessarily in the industry or the market overall, and then buying a good business, reasonable price. And uh, right now, good business, we'd like the price to be better to be buyers of this company. All right, we can move on to our next Your Stock Our Take. Aaron's going to take a listener question or a viewer question on Palantir Technologies. You've talked about this company in the past, I believe, Aaron, as well. Uh, it's an interesting business, certain. Uh, they did break into profitability, I believe, and are promising that for the year. But you tell us whether it's on an adjusted basis or, uh, you know, there has been high, I believe, uh, stock-based compensation in this business in the past. Yeah. And know? that's that's what we've discussed about Palantir before. Yeah. It, was, it has been on the podcast, but not as a year stock our take. It was on the podcast when we yeah, referenced to um, stock-based. What, what in some ways could be construed as the rampant misuse of stock-based compensation, amongst software technology companies, maybe saying misuse is a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly it's, it's, it's a major for most soft, many software companies, it's the largest expense that they incur on the income statement, yet they completely factor this out in the calculation of non gap or adjusted earnings. But we'll get into that in a little bit here. Um, certainly an interesting company. I like the space. So Palantir Technologies, PLTR on the NASDAQ, trades at about $9.50 per share. It's a $19 billion market cap. And what they are is essentially they're an analytics and big data company. Um, so they help their clients, which include government agencies and defense and intelligence, and also corporate clients, um, generate uh, insights 
from large data sets and intelligence from large data sets. Now, the company just IPO'd um, not too long ago, it was in September of 2021. So they IPO'd essentially when the technology space, the software space, um, was almost at its peak. It was approaching its peak before the big downturn that we saw towards the end of 2022. So at one point, shortly after IPOing, Palantir achieved the share price of $34. Since then, it's been pretty much a downhill ride for investors, um, along with the rest of the technology sector, I will add, um, declining about 72% from its all-time high down to the current level. Now, the company did release their Q1 uh, financial results um, just uh, just recently. Um, pretty good results on face value. So revenue up 18%, non-GAAP operating income up uh, 7%, and non-GAAP EPS up about 150 so when we look at these numbers, um, certainly, you know, not impressive growth in the non-GAAP operating income, um, but earnings per share, that looks impressive. Revenue looks all right. Uh, but this, herein lies the issue that we've faced with not just Palantir, but with a lot of software technology companies, is there's a major difference between their non-GAAP or adjusted operating earnings and earnings per share and their gap-based or accounting earnings per share. And whenever you see this big difference, uh, you need to take notice and figure out what, what is causing the differential. So uh, non-GAAP operating income, 125 million, non-GAAP EPS, five cents. Um, but if we look at the unadjusted numbers, we have GAAP operating income of 4 million compared to 125. And, and gap EPS of one cent compared to five cents. So this is the second quarter in a row in its lifetime as a public company um, that it has reported gap earnings. In the past, when we looked at it before, we saw these big numbers with respect to non-gap EPS, non-gap operating earnings, um, but negative values when we when we factor um, in other expenses that they're ignoring in the non-gap adjustment. So. Really, when we look at the operating income here, 4.1 million, it actually doesn't look that profitable on a non-adjusted basis. So there's a couple things that I want to break into here uh, in the numbers, kind of tear apart. So the first thing I think we're going to talk about here is just the, the difference between the, the gap and the non-gap profitability. And I already know what it is. I alluded to it before. It's this expense line item called stock-based compensation which is extremely common in the software technology space, oftentimes being the largest expense that the company incurs. And this is essentially paying their employees in stock or stock options instead of in cash. So this was a great thing for employees when the stock prices of these companies were going up at historic rates year after year after year. Um, over the past year and a half, it's not been so great as in most of the technology sector, we've seen a major um, collapse in share prices since the peak, which again was which was in was in late 2021. Um, now, if we look at at stock based compensation for Palantir relative to revenues, it's 22% of revenues. So this is a very significant number. It is not their largest expense anymore. But I believe when we were looking at um, at the company previously in our stock based compensation um, segment. 
this number was upwards around 50% or more of revenue. So it was a major expense, still is a major expense, but it's come down a lot. And then one of the issues that we discussed as well, um, just with respect to the overall software technology space is, does this underestimate the company's expenses? I mean, if they're used to years and years where they're able to pay their employees in stock and then factor that expense out of the earnings figure that they present to the market, um, what happens when all of a sudden employees start saying, you want to know what? I don't want stock anymore because the stock price keeps going down or it's just not going up. Um, I, I want actual cash. So as this potentially happens, um, this is obviously increases the cash expense for these companies. Now, I don't think that we have necessarily seen this happen yet, partly because there's been a lot of layoffs in the space. So maybe employees have less, less bargaining power right now, but it could be an issue in the future. It is certainly one to look at. There is a major uh, argument or debate in terms of how stock-based compensation should be handled. Some people say just ignore it. Some analysts say just ignore it. It's a non-cash expense. Others say, no, this is, this is an expense because it results in more shares outstanding. Warren Buffett is one, is on the side of the fence. He says, you have to just consider this a full expense. You cannot remove it um, when calculating adjusted earnings. So uh, this is up for debate. But what I will say, and I think that this is a prudent approach, is when there is a significant substantial difference between the gap profitability and the non-GAAP or adjusted profitability, you have to take note, and it and it's easy, but not advisable just to ignore, um, just to ignore the the one of the biggest expenses on a company's income statement. So here, uh, major impact on the financial results. Um, but there's another thing that I want to break out here as well, and that's if you look at the GAAP results here, um, operating income, GAAP operating income, four point one million. But gap net income, 19.1 million, right? So you would generally expect um, from an operational perspective for net income to be less than operating income because it's lower on the income statement. And when it's higher, a lot of the times there's non-cash, there's non-recurring items um, that are adding to that. Sometimes things that you do have to factor out in order to get a real economic assessment of true profitability. But certainly you need to know, I mean, that that's unusual that net income is, is higher than operating income. So we need to dig in. We need to figure out why. Now, the reason why for Palantir basically comes down to uh, interest income. So Palantir has an excellent balance sheet. They have about 2.6 million in net cash, maybe 2.9 million in total cash. Interest rates have come up. So they're now receiving interest payments on that cash balance. Um, interest income for the quarter was almost $21 million. And that's really what has caused the gap profitability, not the operations, but the interest income. Now, a lot of people will say, but Aaron, isn't this a good thing that they have a huge amount of cash on their balance sheet? Absolutely. The, the balance sheet of Palantir is pristine. Uh, that cash, I believe, generated largely from their IPO. Um, but you still need to separate operating profitability from non-operating profitability and interest on a cash balance is non-operating profitability. Um, if they invest that capital, which we hope that they will at one point, if they invest that in, in, in assets that are generating the same return as their current operating assets, then you're not going to, at, at, 
making that assumption, you're not going to get great profitability at the end of the day. You're going to get less interest income and their operating business clearly is not that profitable on a gap basis, right? So this is something you have to consider. It's great that they have this net, net cash balance sheet. As I said, about 2.9. And you meant 2.6 billion, right? 2.6 billion in net cash, about 2.9 yeah. billion, yeah. I believe, in total cash. Um, about 260 million in uh, in lease liability. So that's net cash per share of a dollar yep. twenty six. Pretty significant. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I don't want to look. This is not this is not a financing company, right? When I look at profitability, I want to see that the operating business is profitable and not just that they're um, that they're generating interest income off their cash balance. Eventually, I want to see that cash deployed into profitable operating assets. Um, but anyways, moving on, the company did put out guidance for the full year. They're expecting revenue between 2.18 and 2.235 billion. So that would be about a 14 to 17% increase in revenue from 2022. And then adjusted income from operations uh, between 506 and 556, which would be growth of 20 to 32% from 2022. Now, remember again, this is adjusted. So this does not consider the share-based compensation. And they are also saying gap net income in each quarter. Um, but if they're only generating a cent or two in gap net income, um, and that is primarily the result of uh, interest income from their cash balance, uh, you know, it's it's really difficult to look at that and and come up with what, with what would be a reasonable valuation. Um, but speaking of valuation, if we were, we were to just take the non-gap earnings per share, um, analysts are expecting about 21 cents this year. That seems reasonable considering their guidance and considering their performance in Q1. At the current share price, that would be a price to earnings multiple of 45 times non-GAAP earnings. Um, this is a premium valuation still. Now, once again, interesting business, but trading at a premium valuation. Our take in the end, we do like the analytics and big data business. There's a lot of potential here. They have uh, substantial work in the government space. I believe about 50% of the revenue is government, 50% commercial. They have that beautiful net cash balance sheet, which does provide them with an opportunity to deploy capital. Uh, but they are trading at a high premium valuation. They have minimal to no gap earnings from current operations. Uh, and this is a concern to us. So uh, our, our next steps, we would, we'll continue to monitor Palantir. I like the idea of the business. We have no near-term plans for recommendation at this point. There are other SaaS software as a service companies and AI software stocks that we prefer right now. Yeah, that's a good summary. I mean, it, the company, like after its IPO traded in the 20 to $30 range for an extensive period. So it's come down significantly. Again, it's a case of a company that was just trading at silly valuations at those levels trying to get to profitability, but is there really true profitability there if the major uh, gap EPS is really just coming from interest income, right? So the business I, I found is that breaking in. That, that is, yeah. that is basically be the case. A lot of software companies have big cash. Yeah, value. huge cap. Some from, yeah. from free cash flow, others from raising money in the past when their valuation was, yeah. was higher. Um, so that's good. It's that better if it's from free cash flow, but if it just came... Sorry, if it just came from, you know, the initial IPO in a silly season time, like they're just <laughs> it's milking a, a cash hoard there that they didn't even create. Right. But, you know, right. I mean, obviously, this company has revenues and had had growth, but I mean, the growth is still there. But 
you know, you look at it, I think in the next quarter, the guiding towards 12% revenue growth, that's the slowest rate as, as a public company in its mm-hmm. history. And, you know, they, their growth peaked out in March, 2022 at about 57%, like quarter year over year growth in their quarter then in that March quarter. So it's really come down significantly over that period. And uh, the, I mean, that's why the, you know, I don't know if you should pay 45 times uh, that's non-gap earnings, right? Like that that's a high multiple still, even if it is progressing and moving towards profitability. But like like we said, it's really breaking even without that interest income. So, and there, I did read some other analysts' uh, take on it. And one of the takes was that um, there was noted that some of the revenue outperformance in the quarter was driven by some special purchase or SPAC companies that went out of business and the revenue was prepaid and pulled forward as a result of bankruptcy. So, um, you know, that's a concern there if some of that revenue was more, is not going to continue if those companies went bankrupt, clearly. So I, it does see that it seems that revenue growth is declining and we'd like to see yeah. it increase. What, one last comment I'm going to make here, and this is just to kind of, you know, explain my perspective on why I'm not really that impressed by them making so much money off of their interest income. And that's that, you know, if you look at their cash balance and you look at their interest income, they're generating a return of about 3% off of that. Well, if I'm paying 45 times earnings for an asset, I don't want a return on assets at 3%. I want a solid double digit return well into the double digits, right? So that's good that they're generating some cash off of it right now but it's insufficient. You want to see that capital invested eventually. Now I'm patient as an investor. I believe in being patient when companies have a lot of capital, you don't want them to rush out and invest it into something stupid, but eventually you want that to be invested into a high returning asset. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next, co- unless you guys had something I was on say thanks Palantir. for you know, covering that for Rom. You know, he did send in a Facebook message and he exact, he asked exactly that, you know, they had, two profitable quarters recently and wondering if the valuation is high or low, you answered it perfectly. So uh, I'm sure he'll yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. It breaks yeah. it down to, yeah, you broke into profitability, but if you're still trading in a massive multiple to that profitability mm-hmm. and a good deal of the profitability is not really coming from operations. So, I mean, that, that's something to definitely yeah. consider. So Brennan's going to take a look at Alexandria real estate equities, Inc., yes. A R E or just R on the New York Stock Exchange. Yes, Take it away. Big guy who doesn't visit his mother wow. for Mother's Day. Brennan Terrible. spent an hour on the phone with her. Leave him alone. He's never going to live this down. Okay, so this uh, question came in from Jack, uh, who is a current client uh, via email. And he said, Curious about Alexandria Real Estate Equities REIT. Uh, it has a long term debt at a low interest rate long-term occupancy with over 90% of space occupied. And apparently there was a recent large percentage rental rate increase and both Motley Fool and Zach's recently singled the stock out for it being a bargain. So we'll see if it is potentially a bargain here. Um, So Alexandria Real Estate Equities Inc. ARE on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, currently trading at a price of around $120 per share a market cap of 20.7 billion and a dividend yield of about 4%. Now it is an office REIT focusing primarily on the life science and biotech markets. And the stock was essentially cut in half over the last year. 
Now I wrote year to date in the intro that I sent to Ryan just to prank him. So he would say year to date, not year. Just kidding. I made a mistake. Whoops. The stock was cut in half over the last year, not year to date. Sorry for making you look bad, Ryan. Okay. You only make yourself <sighs> exactly. look bad. Don't at least worry. I'll you know, admit it. Okay. So looking at the actual company. So Alexandria is an owner, operator, and developer of collaborative life science, ag tech, and advanced technology campuses in AAA innovation cluster locations, including the uh, greater Boston, the San Francisco Bay Area, New York City, San Diego, Seattle, Maryland, and its research triangle. Now, the company has about 850 tenants and an asset base in North America of about 75.6 million square feet as of March 31st, 2023. So, Alexandria claims that its differentiation is the cluster model in life science, ag tech, and advanced technology campuses that provides uh, its tenants with highly dynamic and collaborative environments. And as you can see here, I put up on the screen uh, just what their Seattle cluster looks like. So essentially, uh, they have a cluster of uh, you know buildings which they are renting out to um, you know, companies that are in this ag tech life science. And essentially, the key is, is to have them, um, you know, kind of work together and uh, benefit off of each other. And just as a last note, uh, Alexandria also provides some strategic capital to transformative life science, agri-food tech, climate innovation and technology companies through its venture capital uh, platform. And as of March 31st of 2023, the company had about 1.6 billion in investments uh, on its balance sheet. Now, let's actually get into the financials here. So this, the most recent quarter was Q1 of 2023. Now, total revenue was up about 14% to 700.8 million from about 615.1 million in Q1 of 2022. And the growth was primarily driven by strong rental rate growth of about 48%, which represents the highest quarterly rental rate growth uh, ever in the company's history. Now, same property net operating, uh, net operating income growth was about 3.7%. Adjusted funds from operation per unit was up about 7% to $2.19 in the quarter. And as of March 31st uh, of 2023, Alexandria held about $1.26 billion in cash and debt of, of about $11.6 billion, providing a net debt position of about $10.3 billion and a trailing net debt to AFFO multiple of about eight times. And as Jack mentioned in his email to me, uh, the company's long-term debt has a weighted average interest rate of about 3.7%. And essentially all of its uh, debt is fixed rate with no maturities until 2025 and a bulk of the maturities taking place after 2027. And quickly looking at the valuation, uh, it trades with a trailing price to AFFO multiple of about 14 and a half times. And I did take a look at the uh, recent uh, conference call transcript. Uh, and just a few forward-looking comments uh, that management made. They said, in response to the uncertainty and volatility in the markets, uh, management made a strategic decision to reduce 2023 construction spend by about $250 million. Now, they're still going to spend $2.7 in the year. Uh, as well, they are also looking to allocate about $225 million for acquisitions throughout uh, the year. And about 95% of its leases contain contractual annual rent escalations, approximating about 
So looking at the actual guidance or looking forward at the company's 2023 guidance, uh, management anticipates to maintain about 95% occupancy and have rental rate increases of about 28% to 33%. And AFFO per unit is expected to grow uh, approximately 6.4% to $8.96. And this would equate to a forward price to AFFO multiple of about 13.4 times. So to conclude here, I think that Alexandria is a relatively attractive REIT, but I'll let Aaron be the judge afterwards. Um, you know, especially a company that's operating in the office REIT space. Now it pays a decent dividend yield and has a reasonable payout ratio. Uh, it also has grown that dividend considerably over time where it paid an annual dividend of about a dollar. 40 in 2010 and that is now to a forward uh 12 or forward uh yield of about or dividend of about four dollars and 84 cents so they've increased it substantially since 2010. now the company has also produced good affo per unit growth over the last nine quarters and is projecting for about six and a half percent growth in 2023 and while it trades at about 14 and a half times trailing and about 13.4 times forward affo I do not think that the valuation is unreasonable for this growth rate. Now, I also think that the company's balance sheet is relatively attractive, given that a majority of its debt is fixed and it has reasonable leverage ratios. But yeah, I don't think that it's a, a bad REIT overall, um, especially for a company operating in you know the the office uh, REIT side of uh, the the industry. Yeah, definitely a specialized name in the life sciences space. You mentioned um, reasonable leverage ratios. Do you have those offhand? Um, yes. So I believe I said, so it, it is, um, one second here, eight times net debt to trailing AFFO. And then management is guiding, mm -hmm. if I go over here, management is guiding to a net debt uh, to adjusted EBITDA multiple of about 5.1 times. And that's by annualizing their Q1 results here. So, you know, what right, do you think, right. what do you think about that? Like 5.1 times net debt to adjusted EBITDA? Yeah, I like that. It. Yeah. Not too bad. Yeah. Eh? For a REIT. For mm -hmm. REIT. Yeah. Assuming that it, that it has, it has, um, it has good clients, which I mean, it seems it does. No, I mean, I like it. It's, it, it has a nice yield. Payout ratio is good. It's got some growth, some same property growth, mm -hmm. some development growth, valuation. Uh, what was that? About 14 times AFFO looks okay. Yep, yep trailing. Looks decent. Mm -hmm. um, specialized. I mean, it's an opportunity to invest in the life science space. Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, I'd, I'd need to look further to yep. actually say if it's a recommendation of or course. not. I like it. Yeah, it's not I bad. So far. I guess my like one thought too is, and I'd have to dig in and maybe like look further is, you know, Jack is right that they are planning on increasing uh, rental rates significantly. Like as you can see, rent rate increases for the 2023 year are supposed to be 28 to 33%. You know, how long can they continue to push that kind of growth on the rental rate? Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'd like to dig further into that. Uh, is that just kind of a one-year thing? I mean, even as they were saying, you know, uh, in the recent quarter, the growth was primarily driven by strong rental rate growth of about 48%, which represents the highest quarterly rental rate growth in the company's history. You know, how much further can that kind of growth go on? 
I guess is a question that I would. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if they're affected at all by their office rates, people, uh, you know, not returning to the office as much and work from home type trends. I mean, it it, it may be improving for them, people going back. Right. And and so just is that something that maybe that's another interesting. I did also. There would be less of that because a lot of that is research. Yeah. It's like a lot of like labs and stuff where you actually have to kind of be, but it's a good point. You need a clean lab or something. It's hard to do that at home. But there could be support staff or something, you know, it may, it may be the, you know, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure how that would affect the office me. Suite space is definitely not my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But this being a specialized, uh, like more of a niche player, it's, it's, yeah. it's certainly. Yeah. And I did like how Brandon mentioned the word cluster a lot. It was, it was what, what really did you just call me? Did fun you just to hear call me Brandon? Brandon? Say cluster, <laughs> cluster. What's your name? Brenda? Sorry, Brandon. Yeah, I don't even. Let's be honest. I never get. I doesn't know any of our names. So <laughs> I don't even know anybody's name. Ah, uh, okay. Well, now we'll transition from Brenda to Brett. Correct. Right? I think I got that right. Ooh. I think it was Brandon Brett to Brett. That's why I say killer bees. Then it's yeah. Easy, he, right? he he remembers one name instead of two. He doesn't. Well, ever since we went to the uh, the World Outlook and Brennan's name was Brett. Brett. Yeah. Uh, on his name tag, they, they provided him with Brett. Brett, Brett Habitler. <laughs> Habitler. Yeah. Brett Habitler. I say yeah. Habitler. Just like you say Saskatchewan. <laughs> I'm just, uh, it's Saskatoon. I don't even know Anyways. which is which. Fire away, Okay, let's just let Brett go with 23andMe and uh, figure out if they've isolated the stock picking gene. <laughs> no, no, that, that, that's a segue. But uh, we, we got a question from Bale via email on 23andMe wondering about the value of their genetic data. 23andMe, symbol ME or ME on the NASDAQ currently trades at about 205 a share with a market cap of $940 million. Founded in 2006, 23andMe is a consumer genetics and research company. The company has built the world's largest crowdsourced platform for genetic research. The company became public through a SPAC in 2021, where it's fallen about 80% since. First, let's look at the financials for Q3 2023. Revenue came in at $67 million, an increase of 18% year-over-year, but this is primarily due to their acquisition of the telehealth service company Lemonade. Not Lemonade, not the drink, Ryan, before you start to try to drink a company. Damn it. The company, Damn. <laughs> the company still had an adjusted EBITDA deficit of $43 million compared to a deficit of $64 million in the prior year, so less of a loss, but still a big loss. 23andMe continued a streak of net losses on a gap basis. For the quarter, the company had a net loss of $92 million compared to a net loss of $89 million in the prior year, so relatively flat on a uh, gap loss year over year. But on a more positive note, the company does have a massive cash position of $432 million. That's roughly 46% of the market cap. But they also had net cash used for operation of $120 million for the first three quarters, so nine months of fiscal 2023. This also includes a nine a one-time payment from uh, GSK to extend its exclusive partnership with 23andMe for research, and that was $50 million. So if they didn't have that, obviously it would drop quite a bit, but they are working but to, to earn that uh, cash. But it's a big payment for them, and if they obviously had didn't have that renewed or extended, then they would have had probably quite a bit more burn for the period. So with its current operations, Value just isn't being created for investors. The company's management knows this, which is why they're looking to leverage this genetic database by integrating it with telehealth services. That's where they brought on their uh, Lemonade 
uh, acquisition. Effectively, they want their existing genetic uh, testing to give customers a profile of disease that they are at risk of. Then they integrate those results with the telehealth and then pharmacy services. So they're trying to create that one next level, go from one that you identify the issue or potential issue, you go to this is an issue, and then they go to the treatment. So, but as of right now, they don't really seem to be creating any synergistic relationship as far as revenue growth right now. Like I said, the acquisition was just the add-on or the revenue growth was just the add-on of the existing revenue. And when asked about cost synergies in the last earnings call, management gave a non-answer of saying the two companies are complementary and their focus on is on increasing value for the customer. So in reality, they're unlikely seeing cost synergies after that answer. However, they are involved in research leveraged by their data in help of the development of treatments for diseases, which it currently counts for about 20% of the revenue as of last quarter. All the revenue in this segment comes from G- their GSK partnership, which started in 2018 and ends in July after their extension. That's where that 50 mil came from. And this obviously, if they, once this ends, their revenue from the segment could alter significantly for better or worse, but management isn't commenting on it right now as they cannot since uh, the par- potential partnerships cannot be commented on until the exclusivity period. So investors are really in the dark for this. However, there is a, the blue sky opportunity for the company if the success of its treatment derived from its genetic database. The company currently has a notable treatment in development and antibody treatment that targets CD200R1, a potential cancer treatment, and is currently in phase 2A of clinical trials. If successful, the company could be extremely lucrative, or the drug could be extremely lucrative for the company, but it still has significant and many hurdles to surpass, and it may never materialize. As well, they do... They could potentially receive royalties from GSK 608, which they helped initially develop, but then they didn't want to keep on incurring operating costs. So they elected to into an option of taking royalties and they don't have to pay for the operating costs as it's developed by GSK. And that's currently in phase one. The company's core asset is its data and it could be at long term risk. 23andMe uses genotyping force analysis as it's cost-effective for consumers. That makes sense. They started in 2006. At the time, gene sequencing, which is superior as it does the full, you can do the full human genetic information, was about $10 million a test. Yes, $10 million. And now that's down to about $500, depending on who you're looking at. So you're looking at a exponentially lower cost to do this better test and obviously if you're looking at the research market they might want these full genetic results so it could potentially if another company starts to build up a large enough database it would have more depth than 23andme they have a widespread they have about 14 million users but they do not have the depth of what modern gene sequencing could get overall the company just does not fit our criteria simply it's not near profitability it's burning cash quarter over quarter at this time its current bullish thesis is about the same as any biopharma company of if the treatments can make it to market, if they can scale their treatments, it could really see a blue sky potential. But that's, they're going to see many of those and many, many more fail than what do succeed. So, and, and then, of course, of course, you have the risk of if their database starts to lose value, if other competitors come in, gene sequencing comes down, they're on an outdated to the point technology. It's just not something that's really creating value at this time. And there's a lot of risk. It's just not something we really invest in at this time. Yeah, it's it's certainly interesting. Just, I mean, looking at that chart right now, how, how 
how much the price has come down over time too. Uh, I mean, it's probably good that it's come down for sure. But yeah, I, I mean, is it, it, the company just doesn't meet our criteria right now. I mean, the, I don't know if anybody it's has anything else It's interesting that they're like getting there. into like the royalty side of things or trying to develop drugs, you know, using like built off of their data. You know, it is interesting how they're trying to monetize that side of the business, you know, cause that was going to be my, the cash burn right now is is really significant sure. though over even over the first nine months it's gotta and it's, it's gotta come optionality. down who else, knows you know, if at some point they'll have to exactly. raise and who knows if any exactly. of those you know drugs will take off so i mean again it's as much as people on the internet are going to be saying brett you don't understand these drugs you don't know buddy i know i don't know the product, don't know the product i don't know the drug i don't know exactly. the potential that that's normally what we hear from these sorts of things and of course mm-hmm. they can. We're not saying that exactly. they can't have potential, but we're saying the risk outweighs the current potential exactly. reward. So down the line, yeah. let's say these drugs start to make it to market, we might consider them at that point if we see them being potential for investment, because we're looking at this from an investment point of view, not just a product point yeah. of view. Right. And then as well, when you look at the financial analysis of a company like this, you know, our perspective is that if if the product or the service that they that they provide is is a tangible product and service that is actually providing value in their particular industry then they should be able to sell it and they should be able to generate revenue from that um and ideally profitability to the bottom line if a company isn't generating revenue nobody knows the commercial viability of that product or service that's that's just the fact some of them may go on to generate revenue uh many perhaps even most will not and so until the company is actually producing revenue, there's no point in pretending that you know a lot about the product or service, especially if it's something that's highly technical. Most of the people that feel that they have a good sense of the commercial viability of a product don't. Um, it, it, it just, it's an emotional attachment that they have. They want it to be, to be viable. Or something has been said or they've learned something about it that encourages their thinking towards it being viable. But you know, as much as we want to believe in something that could be revolutionary and um, create like huge profit in the portfolio. The first step is to actually see, do the experts in that particular industry believe that it's a worthwhile product to purchase? And if they do, then they have purchased it and the company has generated revenue. The company's pre-revenue, you just don't know. Yeah. I mean, often you see it st- investing people buy the stock and then they get a massive confirmation bias. Every little piece of information that they see that confirms what they want for that company, they just, you know, believe that blindly. And it's, it, it's something that actually can lead to significant losses over the long term. That's what I have seen. And uh, it can be, a, you know, something that you should avoid. That's why. We, and we always hear too, well, once it gets revenue, once it gets uh, profitability, well, then you've already missed out. Um, from what I, I, you know, some of the best stocks that we've ever recommended had profitability, earnings, revenue, and growth when we initially invested in them. And they had, I mean, I mentioned four of them today. All of them had 10x times growth after that. That's what everybody's looking for when they buy a blue sky type story. But you don't have to have the downside risk. Yeah, uh, that some of these. Yeah, you got have. the proof of That's concept. That's what you're really with, looking for. You know, but with yeah. waiting a little bit, you know, being patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, that'll close out our show this week. I'd like to in- encourage everybody to go. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, smash that subscribe button. If you're listening to this on iTunes, go there, rate and review us. 
and we'll continue to provide that content on a weekly basis. Ask us the questions for our Your Stock, Our Take segments, or if you want us to talk about any financial topic or issue, uh, send those questions in any way you can get in contact with us. And as always, I'd like to wish you profitable investing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.